Hello, dear listener. Thank you for joining the conversation tonight on Lex Talk About It. We will be discussing adaptational media. And there's kind of a lot that falls under that. And I thought who better to join me than my friends Taryn, Alyssa, and Aaron. Erin, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi, listeners. Uh, my name is Taryn. I have a background in acting as well as psychology and close text reading. So that's why I really enjoy looking at media and how it translates between the different mediums. So if you want to follow me and hear more, learn more about kind of what I do, um, check me out on Instagram at Lion's Den's Projects. And that's lion with a Y. Alyssa. Hi, everybody. I am Alyssa. I am a former former and proud English major. So yes, close reading of texts, part of my education. Uh, I am also a former owner of North Fulton Drama Club, a theater company that did Shakespeare and interpreting it into different time periods and settings. So I am all about that transformational media. And you can find me on Instagram at Jack for pictures of my adorable cats. They're very cute. <laughs> and Erin. Hi, um, I'm Erin. I work with Novi on a bunch of various projects. My tagline on all of social media, which is Erin underscore go underscore play, um, is that if you can talk about it, I can nerd out about it. It's true. Um, <laughs> also an English major and also a former actor. And then I have a special project coming up later in September that is a surprise for everyone. Yes. Okay. So excited. So let's jump in first, like kind of defining what adaptational media is. Uh, Adaptational media in this context, we're talking about previous works of fiction and literature that are adapted into different forms, Uh, whether that's taking Jane Austen and turning it into clueless or whether that is taking the X-Men comics and turning them into a cartoon. And then from that cartoon into a live action and just the manga to anime, just the different ways that we adapt fiction and, and transform and tell, tell the same story uh, in new ways. What was everybody's like first, like, your childhood adaptational media that you like adored. Rankin Rankin Bass the Hobbit. Ooh, good one. Okay. Rankin Bass the Hobbit, which I'm sure we will get into more in depth later because the that is, I feel, the best adaptation that you can have of the Hobbit books and text that keeps the feel of what Tolkien was doing in that. The the live action flicks are completely that's a whole mess but Rankin Bass was my first introduction to adaptive media and I still have like 15 birds they have no wings like it's it's still there (laughs) that's awesome Karen what about you so I probably um it would be Sailor Moon and um 
that story is funny because I despise the original Sailor Moon anime. <laughs> because I don't, I don't think it did a good adaptation of the manga, um, which is a, a little soapbox that I kind of stand on by myself. But um, I will definitely say uh, Sailor Moon. <laughs> on my list for sure. What, what about you, Alyssa? So I'm going to reveal the, the depth of my nerdiness here. Um, in the seventh grade, because I was so obsessed with Les Mis, the musical, I read the unabridged full oh, no. Les Mis. No, no, no. And I loved it. I Incredible. loved it. I did not read it in French because I don't speak French. But um, yes, I did read the entire. So it's interesting. It was almost a flip. It was a flip flop. Like yeah. The, yeah. the adapted media led me back to the original source material. That's mm-hmm. funny because I read uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame after the Disney movie. So I'm there with you on that. <laughs> that Victor Hugo. Yeah, man. <laughs> The same thing, like I, I say Rankin Bass, The Hobbit. When I first saw the Rankin Bass movie, I was probably five. I was not reading The Hobbit at that point. I definitely read it after. Yeah, like I, that is one of the really cool things about adaptational media. It, like it'll lead you back to, you know, the source and like, and, and sometimes it doesn't like, with like the reference of Jane Austen and Clueless, like some listeners might not get that. Uh, Clueless is actually an adaptation of the Jane Austen work, Emma. And Emma was, was very different to most of Austen's other, other media, other, uh, heroines, uh, in that she had her own money. So it wasn't as, it wasn't as about like marriage immediately. It was more about the social life. But I digress. Like for me, my first introduction to Shakespeare was Gargoyles, the Disney animated series. Yeah, yes. um, <laughs> so good, so good. I am obsessed with that show, and like anytime somebody hasn't seen it, I'm like, well, let me tell you everything about it. I know the deep <laughs> lore, um, <laughs> and it's 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 really good in that. I th- I think Gargoyles is really interesting. I wouldn't call it a perfect adaptation, but it is very good in that it doesn't underestimate its audience. Like this is a show that was made for like seven year old and up. And like one of the most iconic lines from the first episodes was, uh, if you pay a man enough, he'll walk barefoot through hell. And it's like, sir, this is for children. Like, <laughs> just kidding those of us who grew up in the 90s our children's movies were not made for children were so not. True. and like so and, but true. it was and but i think that there's something good to like there's something to be said for that and not like underestimating the audience and not like i'm making this for seven-year-olds seven-year-olds like no they're not gonna know who shakespeare is but adapting uh midsummer for seven-year-olds is doable like that if of any shakespeare show like that's one that i would be like yes absolutely you can hook a seven-year-old and and make them understand that i think there was a great like building off what you said aaron there was this awesome kind of golden era of animation in the 90s uh and 2000s that I was thinking 
my other answer was going to be Batman, the animated series, which was kind of my first oh, introduction yes. to DC because I wasn't a comic book reader. Um, like my parents are not comic book folks. So, you know, I, I that was my first introduction to that world. And it was very similar. It tackled adult subjects, but it was intended for like, you know, a middle school plus audience. And, and it dealt with marriage and love and death and Mm-hmm. insanity all these amazing ways so yeah it's it was a pretty cool time for us on the yeah and on this similar tangent like hunchback mm-hmm. hunchback oh, of man. notre dame so dark it, so it dark. was really dark and it's really surprising like it got greenlit in the first place um though from from what i understand it actually was the hunchback cartoon from disney is actually based on a play about the hunchback that was based on an opera that was based on the original book. So there's this long history of adaptation of the hunchback of Notre Dame, which is how he got to what Disney created, which is uh, gargoyles. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, and that's not new. Like a lot of, a lot of Shakespeare's, plays were adaptations of stories that were already told back then but those stories weren't really recorded they were largely mm-hmm. like oral except for like romeo versus romeo and juliet versus <laughs> antigone let's be clear this is a word for word remake shakespeare yeah. um big old thief but you know oh, what? Yeah. it's it's it's, it's Was uh, he- you can do it when you when you're good at it <laughs> was he a, was he a thief or was he a fan author is it all just uh, fan fiction depends you know what which scholar you talk to right exactly <laughs> i really believe he lifted his work whole cloth from other people i feel like the definition like what really is going to determine something though is how well you do the artwork of it so how well did you do that adaptation because if you did that adaptation poorly it's only going to be seen as a poor adaptation of whatever it is that you are copying off of for lack of a better term well there's a great example when you're talking about shakespeare someone who literally has some of the most respected adaptations of Shakespeare and some of those panned is Kenneth Branagh because he has, you know, his legendary Henry V and Hamlet and then his Love's Labor's Lost, which he tried to do as a musical, everyone hates. So <laughs> there's there's no guarantee that even if you succeed in one way, you're, you're going to succeed in all of them. And then that, that also bringing up Kenneth, um, Kevin Branagh, sidesteps into marvel even because they purposely lifted him to do the first thor movie because they wanted that more theatrical feel for him which really set the tone for thor as a character as well so it's very interesting how in talking about adaptational media like even as a creator of media you know what you're most familiar with still translates into other pieces that you work on so that you know that 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 high theater like very british theater feel continues on in a lot of the work he does even if it's not shakespearean related yeah yeah and in that vein on the thor movies i think that was a great choice and i think it's a choice that kind of got lost and then brought back because when you're playing with a a god and putting them in the world of humans, you have to have a level of camp because Mm -hmm. if you just play it straight, it's not going to sell. It's not going to work. Why is this God invested in petty mortals for lack of a better term? 
And so bringing in that extra theatrical and extra dramatic touch and taking it over the top, that's what Thor needed. Yeah, definitely agree. I am going to put a pin in that because I want to <laughs> I want to circle back to what we were at because I have opinions. Um, you know this. You, I prepared you for the fact that I have um, I have opinions. Lex um, and I are probably going to fight about Thor later, just so everyone else is aware. Don't worry, I'll join in with you. <laughs> I'll go get my hammer. So, so yes. Um, <laughs> circling back to kind of that thematic uh adaptation like it's like people develop a kind of formula for an adaptation which i think only works for a certain amount of time like once you get formulaic with it like we don't want to see it retold like cinderella a cinderella story another cinderella story the cinderella like so many the brandy version the whitney houston version uh the whitney houston brandy <laughs> like yeah the so TV. that version like i love that version and i <laughs> i'm going to admit this as a stupid child that made sense to me i looked at that movie and i said black and white make asian yes i believe <laughs> this i, I did not question it I didn't either, though. And that's, that's an argument for colorblind casting, to be honest, because I didn't question it. I was just like, yeah, no, that's the print. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's also like kind of the beauty of children, you know? Right. Like, 100% this is the beauty of children. <laughs> um, God, it really, I really did not question that for a second. But like, that was a really cool adaptation. Um, the one with Drew Barrymore, that one's a really, that one's a really beautifully done adaptation because yes, it takes this story, but like, no, let's change the names. Let's move what happened. Let's change, you know, something about, and that's the beautiful thing about public domain is it, it frees us up to do these really beautiful adaptations. Ever after is what that's mm-hmm. called. Just- yeah. Thank you. Yes. Ever after. Um, it's Alice in Wonder, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz. These are, these are, these are things that we see adapted time and time again, but yet there are still so many ways to do it freshly. So it's not formulaic. So it's not just the same story with a different costume or same story with a different theme. Like everything is the same. It's just steampunk or, you know, like, okay, why is it steampunk? Like, you know, when you're adapting something in that way, like take risks for sure. Like make it your own because if you, if you, tread too closely to your source material then it looks like you're not taking risks and it looks just it looks just like the same story in a different font it's just a story that's been told and we've all seen read heard that story we don't need it again yeah Mm -hmm. and the power of adaptation too is it allows you to work with the themes in a different way you can pick up on themes that already exist but decide to enhance one theme or or enhance a single idea when i was in high school i was in a shakespearean youth company and the first production i did was king lear and the uh, the way we said it is that we were fairies but specifically our fairies were fractals of humanity there was this whole theme of fractals behind everything 
the entire way that the set was designed and then the costumes were designed so that like we were representing uh, the human emotions. And so that's why everything was so much more, you know, not because we're performing Shakespeare, but because we're fairies. So we feel these emotions so much more. Um, and, and it really helps, you know, things like that can really help <laughs> bring pieces to light, especially with a play like King Lear, which is notoriously one of his pieces that is the hardest to perform in a way that the audience can understand. You can you can do so much with the artistry of that. I completely agree with that. And I think what you've hit on too is you need, I think for a successful adaptation, you need to choose something that resonates with the audience and res and help. Like one of the things that my theater company, the reason why we chose the themes that we did or the setting that we did was it was something to help the audience, especially with Shakespeare, grasp what the story was. So when we did King Lear, we set it in the 1930s and we kind of had this like, Huey Long depression era, like the kingdom is in decline, the world is in, you know, this the the country is in decline, kind of played with that. Like, and when we did um one of my favorites, we did uh Much Ado About Nothing, and we set that one in post-World War II, because that's what is happening in the play is all the soldiers are coming back from a battle and it's that sort of time of prosperity when you can think about love and marriage. So I think and I'm going to take this, I'm going to take it to another point. I think one of the things that's been the most frustrating in some failed recent adaptations are the live action remakes of Disney classics. So many of them mm -hmm. don't have an original point of view or something new to take it and make the user see it in a different way. Yeah. I think Mulan was one of the ones that tried to do this. <laughs> I say tried. I say tried. By, by using actual Chinese story roots and using that like, well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about like the Kung Fu tradition yeah. of Chinese film by trying yeah. to like take like something that the, that the audience would sort of know or like tie it into that cultural history. Now, yeah. obviously like they're very mixed opinions. People really dislike that film. But if you put that side by side by Aladdin, which was just essentially a shot for shot remake and didn't really do anything new besides make it live action. Yeah. Or Beauty and the Beast. Or Beauty and the Beast. Like that's, why would you watch it? And same, I was really, I hated the new Lion King. I got really mad at that. But um, just that idea of like trying to give users a new way into the story like, if you're not going to do that, then why are you bothering? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I mean, I'm very distracted Mulan by the Mulan topic. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, Mulan they, they is took triggering. The uh. They took the classic wuxia. So I, I'm a Chinese minor, um, so I've got a lot of time spent devoted to actually Chinese culture and Chinese learning um, because I minored in it in my school only had intensives. And so we had to spend a lot of time eight hours a day in class when we were in class. And then we also had to spend four hours a week in the language lab where the head of our language lab was also from China. Um, so as they should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, but I mean like the language lab was for all languages. So like the Chi the French students and everybody, like it was where they had the access to 
the hard drives of movies and all of these different languages that you would go in and learn. And one of the greatest things that we could do, one of the most fun ways to spend your four hours a week that you had to spend in the language lab. First of all, we I went to North Georgia University. They have an exchange program with Tsinghua in Beijing. Um, so we had the Tsinghua students that we could speak to and like actually converse in Chinese. Um, but also there were a lot of the Weishan movies, which is like the typical Chinese kung fu but like before bruce lee jackie chan kung fu where kung fu and that sort of thing is kind of magic right and it felt like i haven't watched it but like from the trailers and from because like there's a lot of things with like the, the concentration camps and all that with mulan um but from listening to actual chinese people talk about it and chinese americans talk about it a lot of what i'm hearing is that they took the the way shot theories of like kung fu makes you magic but then they transformed them very poorly they really made it they try in trying to make it digestible enough for what they believe a western audience was capable of understanding which kind of touches on that you need to trust your audience point uh, that came up before so they didn't really trust their audience to a understand it b they then they watered it down so much they made it so simplistic and they took away a lot of the themes that really made people love Mulan in the first place, because there's a lot of feminist themes in mm -hmm. Mulan that got completely stripped from her character. Like basically they just, they were just like, she went to go fight in this battle in this war because she was a magical person. Like she, <gasps> she had some okay. type, she had She's a magical girl. Yeah. So literally. This is true. She she is completely bastardized. She like, is completely oh, oh completely. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, it's no. yeah. completely bastardized. Um, and like I'm by by no means an expert in Chinese culture at all. I, I you know I know a little bit to know not be ignorant, but I, I at least know that Chi is not just like the, the magic power. You know, like <laughs> the way the way most Western people understand she might as well be like key points from dungeons and dragons like <laughs> it's, it it's so far for this like it's some motherfucking naruto bullshit the way that western people <laughs> interpret she um, but like even that even that still is better than how they handled it in mulan oh no because they literally were like oh mulan has her chi she has she has chi like they could have swapped in like some other word and it would have made more sense but they decided to use the word chi so they could stick more chinese words in it to make it more chinese like this is this the, is yeah the reviewer that i listened to and again i have not seen it i refuse for for moral purposes mm -hmm. but there is a chinese american reviewer who um is on youtube and i'll try to find that so that we can link her and get her the appropriate yes credit yes and we will yeah her. we will put that in the description of the episode uh we will also probably link it in some of the permalinks that will be in our discord Yes. So, um, but she, she ex describes it very much and says that in the movie, basically there's a lot of times where they're like, she is for men and women. Ha you have, you have too much chi to be a woman and you have to hide your chi. And I mean, Alyssa, did you watch it? No, I didn't. It? I have not. Okay. So uh, now that I might won't. <laughs> be, she run Jay's out. 
Zhao, that sounds right. Uh, Shiran Zhao sounds right. She only has a few videos, and I was very disappointed by that when I discovered it. <laughs> she, she's <laughs> now building more. out her YouTube channel. She has okay. some great videos on Avatar The Last Airbender now. So. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. And, yeah, that's her, because she had started it. She had just started the Avatar when I saw her. Yes. Also, since we're working on plugging her, her a debut novel called Iron Widow is now available for pre-order. And I highly go recommend, especially if you are into anime and nerd stuff, as well as Chinese culture, it sounds amazing. So go check it out. That does sound amazing. And by anime, we mean like anime, hamburger anime, which is what Avatar is. Uh, <laughs> but also she, she also draws heavily from Gundam Wing, Ooh, um, Darling yeah. in the Franks, Ooh. a lot of okay. like the, the older classical animes. Like she, she is a nerd with us. She's fantastic. Love that. Um, yes. So back to the, back to the thread. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but, but I feel like if you're going to adapt something, you do need an original theme. Like you need to, well, not an original, you need to, as English majors, as anyone who's done close reading can tell you any book that you read, you can find the four of us could read the same book and we could find different themes that we could literally defend with a fucking thesis paper. Oh yeah, 100%. Because as long as you can support it contextually, it's a fine thing to to claim as a study of a work of art. If you can find context clues that support your thesis and what you think the theme is, that's acceptable. So it needs to be not just the theme is China in some random regards. The translation for what Erin just said is... Um... It's fine. Make your head cannons just have context. Uh, <laughs> just, yes, honestly, don't yeah. be racist. That's it. Right, right. <laughs> Even if oh. it's just a single glance between characters that you can interpret into an entire backstory, <laughs> valid. Are you are you subtweeting steric shippers right now? Um, <laughs> yes, I am a. <laughs> I am a Steric fan. I am also um, a Remus Sirius shipper because in book same, same, in book five, same. they give Harry a joint Christmas present. Obviously, they're a couple. Obviously. Um, excuse Obviously. me. Excuse me. I could go into that way more than we have time for. And it's not the purpose of this episode, but there is so much there. Also, so much. let me tell you, and I'm sure we'll get into fandom fanfic discussions but i will say i was a member of stargate atlantis uh fandom which was the most batshit insane fandom i can tell you i'm not kidding as someone who was a old school harry potter fan like the beginnings of yes. harry potter fandom yes. because i'm old the stargate atlantis fandom had pairings for with characters that literally never interacted and they were like yeah. deep and like engaging and it was amazing it was the crack fandom. ship goes deep let me tell you um as somebody who like I, okay so i i did not run a blog devoted to this but i was involved in all of these fandoms collectively known as super hulak super uh, hulak and super throw hulak. in throw in teen wolf for good measure why not <laughs> um yeah, and so Teen Wolf was actually the first uh, fandom that I ever published fanfic for. 
And the way that I uh, did it is um, I made I made witch styles and I crossed it over and like made him a descendant of the Hallowells because I sure. was, was also like charmed trash and yeah. nobody that I really <laughs> went to school with like knew charmed. And I was like, here's a great way to introduce charmed to new people. There was that was like a huge part of fandom was witch styles. Like, again, it's another one of those. Okay, we'll just let's just like, can we just dive into um, fanon? Right, like, like just real quick because I will have a full episode on on like fandom culture and stuff like this. But yes, because it's part of it's part of adaptation. Like, I think there's something that fanon and fandom works are really good at in that adaptational like era and that like field so yeah like talk talk about it i just i just love the and i'll i I, I, you can talk about this i'll just give you this as a topic i just want to mention it one of the things that i love i think about a maybe a successful adaptation or something that's done successful in a show is when there are like accepted fanon headcanons that everyone's like oh yeah that's a thing we all agree like styles is a witch 100 (laughs) percent. everyone's on board with that i love stuff like that like i just think that's so fantastic when like and it's it's like by subconscious subconscious agreement everyone says yes this is a thing that we believe and we're all gonna write fan fiction about it or just talk about it in our like gift sets or whatever it's delightful I feel like that's almost exactly what this conversation is about. You can create a work. Any artist can create a work of art. But the art then takes on its own life form and life force and becomes more than what you, the artist, have put on paper. Yeah. And there, you can't take it back. J.K. Rowling no longer has any ownership of Harry Potter as far as I'm concerned. I nope. still love the books and... There, I mean, they have issues, don't get me wrong. Um, there are a lot of issues. But, like, the world that she created in my head, the one that I created based on her works in my own head, is a lot better than the world that she necessarily... But the point is, you can create this work, and it's no longer yours. Once it's out there, it's not yours anymore. And, 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 that, and, that, and that is an interesting thing to bring up, right? Because I, ha- I have... I have a very, I have very nuanced feelings about Harry Potter and JK and all of that, because like, it is all well and good to say death of the artist, like separate the art from the artist. Um, And in some ways, yeah, like I, I do love the world that she built, but in other ways I hate it because like she cooked those things into her world. Like the anti-Semitism is cooked in to her, 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 portrayal of the goblins in the bank her transphobia is cooked into her description of rita skeeter like like there's so many dog whistles and outright train whistles with cooked into the world that sometimes it's difficult because like i know these things exist in this world right and because it's not like hp lovecraft like motherfucker is dead and bones and like like he don't matter anymore. He ain't shit. And so, but we can take those those mythos and those things and kind of remove his racism from them. Like with the exception of certain stories, but nobody is trying to adapt those stories anyway. But even so, okay. So like, just for instance, and trigger warning for racism and um, just, because he was a vehement racist. Like, even people of his time were like, dude, you're racist. Like, chill. 
and he made a story where a mixed race child essentially was a fish person. And like, that was the monstrous thing. But then you have the shape of water by Guillermo del Toro, which I'm not like glorifying him in any means, but like Guillermo del Toro adapted this and like took that and made it know, like it made, it changed the narrative around this creature that they're not a monster. And actually they're, they help to break down the walls of all these people that then in turn help each other to better their lives. And so that's, that's kind of how we can like separate it in that way. Yeah. Did any of y'all watch Lovecraft country? Yes. Yes. I haven't finished it yet, but yes. Oh, I don't remember enough of what happened in each episode to like stop at whatever episode you were on, but yeah, go ahead, Lissa. <laughs> well, just like that exact same thing, you know, they literally take race and make it front and center as part of that story. And you and say, you know, the people who follow this religion or, you know, it's not Cthulhu, but it's that sort of dealing with magic and ancient arts. Those people are racist. And these black characters are going to come and have to confront that part of the story. And it's so good. And the way that they treat and then using historically important black events to bring that into the story and even create more depth is phenomenal. Like, I don't always love every episode of that show because I'm not super into gore and holy shit is that show gory, but I love how they are using it, using this like inherently racist text and using that and making that part of the story to like, to reown it and reshape it. And Lovecraft Country itself is adapted from a book. Uh, Lovecraft Country was uh, like a series of books and uh, the author, and it was so, I was so surprised when I found out the author was white but uh like yeah like he wrote this and then he kind of gave it to the black community and said adapt it do what you want and that's how we got the the hbo series um very well done mad trigger warnings like you know race and i and here's the thing i think media like that is super important um i talked about this a little bit there there's another episode where i talk about representation versus tokenization in media uh, and that's a really good example of because I, I don't love recycled trauma, right? I don't love doing those stories over and over again, because then those become the only roles that those people get to play. And it also becomes like, God, like, at, at a certain point, it's like, don't you get it? Aren't we human now? And but like they do it in a really good way where it's like, yeah, like this is the era that it's taking place in and it's taking place on, you know, this planet Earth. So we're not going to shy away from the fact that, yeah, this happened, but they do it in in a really good way because it's not, you know, there's we don't have the white savory bullshit that happens. It's not, you know, it, it really just shows these people and 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 their struggles and how, you know, they persevered. I really love any adaptational media. So like if you're taking any book, any series, any whatever, and translating it to film, and you're taking racist, sexist, transphobic, whatever stereotypes, and you're losing those and showing the characters with strengths in the film project or whatever your adaptation is, I really appreciate that. Um, One of the shows that I brought to the group for this. Um, it's called Legend of the Seeker. Mm-hmm. 
And the, that's the show. The The book series is called Sword of Truth and it's by Terry Goodkind. And like, if you read it, it's clear that he's trying to do strong, empowered women, but like you can hear my tone and how I'm saying he's trying to do it and recognize exactly how well he succeeds. Well, when you're basing your world off of Ayn Rand, you're probably not going to succeed in um, anything. <laughs> yes. Um, but then the Legend of the Seeker series, which is available on, on Hulu, showrun by Sam Raimi, who did Xena and has a little bit of experience with actual strong women because like he's fucking married to Lucy Lawless. And I'm pretty sure if he fucked it up, she would literally like cut his balls off and just be like, you <laughs> that's fine. You're fine. You can do that. I'll just, I'll just take this one testicle as a tax. Um, <laughs> do what you want, honey. Yeah. Lucy Lawless is, um, an icon. She is an honorary queer. I worship her. Um, you, I just had to, I just had to say that I am legally obligated to say that yeah. as a baby who was raised on Xena when I wasn't supposed to be. I can watch that. Yeah, no, absolutely. But like, so in the book, like you've got this main character, Kaylin, who's like, she's what's called a confessor and her ability is like, she can touch someone and make them love her. And then they fall so far in love that they, their souls are crushed and destroyed and they become slaves to their love for her. It's really, I love this trope. It's really great. Um, But in the, in the books, like she's a great, she's great at strategically doing things because her mother had confessed her father who was a strategic warlord but in the show all of that's forgotten they don't go into that she's just a good fighter because she's a fucking good fighter and one of my favorite moments in all of tv that i have ever seen happens at the end of episode one so you have your main hero richard who's the stereotypical hero, like half the time you're going, Richard, don't. He's going, Richard, yes. And you're like, Richard, no. Okay. All right. He's going to do the thing. I hate him. He's going to do the thing. Um, but she comes in in the first episode and she saves him like two or three times. And then they have to go on this big quest and leave their homeland and whatever. And his best friend is like your stereotypical tank sort of fighter. Like he's this big burly man, whatever. And he's like, I mean, my wife is having a kid, but you've got this important mission and I should go to protect you. And Kaylin, the primary love interest slash this woman whose whole power is love, comes in and she's like, go to your family. I got this. I can protect him. And Chase, the like big burly tank guy is like, okay, yeah, I think you got it. I'm gonna go back to my family and kids and like my wife and kids. And like, it's such a flip of those stereotypes on their head that they don't, they don't even like, it's not a big scene. It's a very quick exchange where she's just like, I got this. And he's like, yeah, cool. I'm going to go back here. And it's such a, like, there's a scene in the books where like, she's trying to be powerful and assert her power. And so she rides naked through the enemy's camp to distract them. And so it's such a big flip of what feminine power can actually be and how much better it's done in the show really, really speaks to me. I really love that about um, mod this age of modern media, where as we're seeing in the news and and just living as people, where we're we're seeing more of these ideas of like 
what women's power can actually be. Like the fact that we have different skin colors, but we're still humans. We don't need to be boiled down to this one thing. Like I love I love the evolution of media that we're at right now where that is becoming more and more common. We're, we're seeing like more and more adaptations where they're taking exactly what you just said, but, and, and, and taking that attempt to make it good and then like actually making it good for a new like generation mm-hmm. or just a new group of people to see like shadow and bones adaptation that just came out on netflix um is a wonderful example of that i feel because it's the the trilogy that it's based on was the author's very first three books and when you are reading that compared to her later books you can definitely tell that like she was a baby author and it's a good story but she had a lot of room to grow. It's very monotone in the books. Like it's very, she was, and she said herself, she was drawing upon the tropes that she read as a child. And so like, it was, you know, not very diverse ethnically and whatnot. And so when her stories got purchased to, for adaptation, she went to the showrunner and went, please do better Mm -hmm. than I did. And so now you have the main character whose race was um, not really stated in the books. She is now um, half Chinese, half white, and that and they hired an actress to reflect that and they hired a writer to reflect that and went to lengths to make sure that that experience was something that they could put in the show in addition to, you know, the fantasy storyline. And I I just think that's really, really great that we can see more of those experiences that we see in our everyday lives. Yeah. And that one is a, that one, like, yeah, that, so like, that's really interesting because that was one of the things I noted is, uh, is that I had heard that, you know, the, the main character isn't, isn't explicitly stated to be or like isn't mixed race in the in the books and they made her half shoe which is yeah it's like a it's the analog for like chinese or asian it's 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 an it's a country based on like uh the chinese region of asia it's avatar Um, versions of asian culture where they're all um yeah where they're all mishmashed kind of yeah it's just unfortunate that it comes out in the time it comes out, right? When we're experiencing this rise in anti-Asian sentiment and th- and then we're faced with that immediately on the screen. And I think... You know, timing's funny that way. It, it's because like right? they wrapped filming in January 2020, you know, like, and then it just, it just so happens. Like, the same thing happened with when... Bethesda put out Wolfenstein 2 and the news that was going on then they had been working on it for four years like they didn't plan they didn't want to use the ongoing media circus as it it just happened it's interesting how life reflects art reflects life you know yeah I mean it's just what's in our cultural consciousness to an extent and then to see that represented in one way or another like the cultural consciousness of we're seeing I mean the COVID and the anti-Asian Pacific not that it hasn't always been there but the amount that it ramped up right the the way that it emboldened people and I think they could have done a slightly better job at like 
in universe like condemning the people who are being racist but i don't think they did a poor job of it either i think that they could um with their stuff and and not for the comfortability of white people but for you know the people of color and the marginalized people watching they can you know along with you know nudity blood racism like you could include that and so it prepares that viewer who who might be experiencing those things in their everyday and like that's that's another thing to get into with adaptations and why those kinds of choices are made and how and how do we make those uh choices in a conscious way and not in a way that's going to you know be negative or pejorative and you know kind of are we are we making these are we choosing to include that that character and that perspective in this story because we truly care about it and we're going to give it the credence that it deserves or are we just trying to hit a quota are we tokenizing it like you said in your other episode yeah and i think that's something interesting that shadow hunters does shadow hunters was the Cassandra Clare uh, series. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, Cassandra Clare. Right. So she <laughs> she started as a Harry Potter fanfic author. Um, and a Lord of the Rings fanfic author. Mm-hmm. Two worlds that could not be more white or straight. Oh, man. Yeah, so true. Yeah. I mean, and I say this as a huge Lord of the Rings fan and also having been a huge Harry Potter fan, but like, yeah, no, two worlds that could not be more white or straight if they tried. From what I understand, the hobbits get super queered. Like, the the, the hobbits can be viewed through a super queer lens, in particular Sam and Frodo. Yes, Sam and Frodo and also Legolas and Gimli can also be viewed through a very, yes. very queer lens. Yes. Um, like to be honest, elves and um, we're gonna go some deep nerd shit here. Um, but um, Sam and Frodo have a lot of like their their relationship is very like very close friend and very possibly gay. But like Legolas and Gimli to me is the more gay presenting like queer coded sort of argument. Um, if only because Legolas and like elves and dwarves have this rivalry that literally in Tolkien mythology goes back to the creation of the races. The elves were supposed to be created first. Um, a rogue angel, so to speak, created the dwarves. And God, so to speak, was like, no, you can't do that. Put them to sleep for thousands of years. And so the dwarves were forced to sleep underground for thousands of years so that the elves could then be the firstborn in Tolkien mythology. Dear readers, I am as lost as those of you who are new to this. I have never seen a... Uh, Tolkien film all the way through. Well, this is all Cimmerillion shit. We're getting down into the deep. I thought we were friends, Lex. I thought we were friends. Listen, <laughs> listen. Another friend of mine has uh, uh, another friend of mine who uh, is a common friend between Taryn and myself has already claimed that she gets to be the one that exposes me to the full films uh, because she wants to have a full Hobbit feast. Yes. But the the point in this clear coding here is that these characters were raised to hate each other in every measurable sense of the word. 
And they also are both a little bit of outcasts from their society as well. And then they wind up literally sailing off at the end of the of the whole series to this world where they never die. Literally, Legolas is the last elf left in Middle-earth because he stays to travel around with Gimli and then takes him with him to this place that mortals are not supposed to be allowed to go into the undying lands. And so, like, he literally leaves his whole culture to spend time with this guy. And then, essentially, they die side by side. They ride off into the sunset side by side. That is gay. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There is not a heterosexual explanation for that. Uh... So but like queer coding, they're they're gay. Um, and like and 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 you know that could be intentional or unintentional. Um, that's you know kind of the difference between queer coding and like being viewed through a queer lens or like what's called queering the character and things like that. But that's one of, that's one of another one of the interesting things. Like it goes back to you know that representation and just to circle back because uh you know we we are flowing <laughs> real well but sometimes we got to reverse the flow a little bit um, but yeah with shadow hunters so cassandra clare you know wrote fan fiction she wrote hermione draco uh fan fiction and people like that story she adapted it to make it like an original concept and that concept became the city of bones city of ashes that whole series right i think it was actually jenny draco that it's based on oh yeah 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 yeah. it might be they're kind of the main partner in that yeah so no one in this podcast no one in this episode is a nerd at all i'm gathering yeah, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely don't have those fix saved on uh, on my computer because she took them down after. Right, she that's what I was going to get into. That's what I was going to get because so number one, like she, you know, got this book deal and then was going back and removing these fix uh, because turns around finds out like that the, these books are just those fix recycled. They're not though. They're not. They're really not. Like I will okay. I I have met Cassie. Like she and I were acquaintances back in the day. I have um pictures from uh Harry Potter conferences. We knew each other. I she wouldn't I guarantee you she would not remember me now. She is still friends with some of my friends. So but I am this is not in any way being an apologist for her. She is super problematic. She has done some very problematic things. However, having read those fics as deeply as I did because I was obsessed with them. Um, and then having read the books, they are basically what she ended up doing. Speaking of adaptation, she took the character of Draco and what a lot of fanon people did is made him reformed, like kind of take where JK left him at the end of the of book six, seven, which is I think leaving him open to be redeemed we don't know what happens in that time period between that and the epilogue. Mm-hmm. So basically what she did was sort of took that character and gave him this really interesting backstory. And, and then this, this whole, which she basically wrote like novels. Those fix yeah. are like over a hundred thousand words. Um, so she created this fan in Draco, which then yes, she did very high, heavily based Jace on her Draco. But to me, it's not, 
it's not like she took Draco from Harry Potter and turned him into her character. No. She turned her original creation, mm-hmm. which I think is fine. Like a lot of fanfic authors, you know, lots more and more and more and more are coming out of the closet. Like um, the, oh gosh, I don't know her last name. The director who just won the Oscar, Chloe, what is her last name? Um, she won for Nomadland. Anyway, she said in an interview recently, she was like, when I, I write fan fiction and when I write it, I do X, Y, Z. So like, it's definitely becoming not a taboo thing anymore. Yeah, there's a PBS video on their YouTube channel, actually, about it. Um, it's part of the, uh, like, Let's Get Lit or It's Lit, where they talk about, they call it uh, uh, scrubbing the like scrubbing the code off or something where it's becoming more and more popular and and they're trying to the whole video is basically this concept of like we we really shouldn't shame people for fan fiction and we shouldn't shame published authors to circle that back to our initial intro into this conversation if you're gonna shame fanfic authors you gotta fucking shame shakespeare because he's the initial fanfic author like art is so the human condition is so circular. It is so mm-hmm. wrapped up. We all have slightly slight variations of the same versions of experience. And so there are no real original stories anymore. Everything that we're watching or seeing is an adaptation of something else. Literally, there. I think the Western world and Western storytellers still use what is it taryn i think what is is it the same 37 from ancient greece like oh it's, gosh i believe i believe that's about right yeah yeah there it's yeah. literally like you you we learn this in theater you learn this in i think you learn this if you're a lit major like the 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 western story and the way the western story is told and the the plots that we use are all different derivatives of the, these same 37 plots from ancient greece it's the hero's journey baby how many different yep. ways can we tell it <laughs> hello that's it it's really the one it's really the, it's one. the one it's the hero's journey and how can you tell the hero's journey in a different way yeah it's it's funny because um i think that also depends on the type of media though right because um there's this other youtube channel i've started watching called cinema therapy that is a therapist and a movie maker who sit and watch films together and uh but the one episode the filmmaker made this point that sometimes especially when an adaptation is made into film it gets like boiled down so much and simplified so much because the hero's journey is kind of the only journey you can tell in that time period that you have um and he had put it in in context of the three iron man movies so like iron man three being about tony coping with his ptsd is not your typical hero movie but because he had so many movies to create this character arc they were able to tell more of a story than just the hero's journey i'm gonna put a pin in iron man 3 because i just had a very in-depth conversation last night about how they could have not fucked over hawkeye in regards (laughs) to adding one thing changing one thing in iron man 3 and you could have gotten a much better hawkeye pin in that i have a lot of feelings well can we can i like i'm gonna switch topics just very slightly when talking about um mediums i think that's something that people have been playing around with a lot especially in terms of like freedom to adapt is YouTube. Um, 
And I'm thinking specifically of the Lizzie Bennett diaries. Did any of you watch yeah. that? Yeah. I watched very little. I, I watched a little because um, a lot of my friends did. Did you ever watch School of Thrones? No. No. I've seen parts of that, I think. Okay. So so my friends did School of Thrones. Um, and it's basically a Mean Girls Game of Thrones mashup. That's Love on it. YouTube. Oh, and... I did watch. Yes, I watched some episodes of that. Yes. So I okay, didn't watch yeah. Game of Thrones. So I, if it if it's related to Game of Thrones, I haven't seen it. I really only watched it because my friends made it, and then Joey Richter from Star Kids was in it, and I was like, I want nice, and I was like, I want to meet. And my friend who was directing was like, Fly out to LA, I'll put you in, it and you guys can be friends. And I was like, mm, I don't have money for a plane ticket, so that's not gonna happen. But thank you. Uh, I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. I feel that. I feel Speaking that. of adaptation, Star Kid. Um, yeah. yes. no, I was, yes. was going to bring that up. I was going to bring that up. But yeah, like I think that you know, with the creation, like everyone when they were little, well, depending on how old you are, um, would like take the family video camera, whatever version of it was, and go off and like make your own movies and do that stuff. Um, I there is a video, there is a VHS that exists of me and my sister and her friend doing our version of the Buffy movie. Incredible! It's, it's horrifying and amazing. Incredible. Um, so yeah, like there's been this tradition, right? But now with when YouTube started, there's this you can do it for free. You can make whatever you want. You can put it out there, and then you can start making money from it if you want. It's it's kind of amazing. And so I think that there were a big, there was like a big push for. Um, for adaptations there for a while. And if I really loved the Lizzie Bennet diaries, I thought it was, I mean, Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite books of all time. I thought it was a really interesting way of using the premise of a vlog and translating that into adapting the story and the way they pulled in different characters and having the girl who played Lizzie be her parents. And like, just by putting on a hat and doing this accent, like making fun of her, her mom, which is totally in character um so i just i love that is very in character for a lizzie oh yeah right it's great she puts on this like giant hat and she's like oh darling it's hilarious <laughs> a connection there was that that actress is in school of thrones because i don't think oh, i actually nice. made that connection clear um that's where that connection came from but yeah no that sounds amazing it's great it's really really great i i think that it's one of the more successful because then they did, they tried to do Emma in a ser- in a similar fashion after, and I just couldn't get into it as much. I yeah. Emma's Emma's just tougher, I think, in general um, to adapt. But yeah, yeah, I think it's cool that like there there is this people can get really creative with doing adaptations and using different media to play around with that idea. Well, it's just like and like sometimes we watch it. And we we don't know it's an adaptation, and it's done for, like uh, cruel intentions. Yes, cruel mm-hmm. intentions Obsessed. is so good. So good. I am obsessed with it. It is like first of all, Buffy. Hello, like um, and that beautiful boy. I cannot think of his name. Ryan Philippe. Yes, Ryan Philippe. He, he, like, watching that movie is just me sitting there, this better not awaken anything in me. <laughs> um, and then it did. Then it did. <laughs> and then it did. 
audience that awakened everything. There were so many things and adaptations that awakened things in me, like fucking the Batman adaptation with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, and that just the scene where they're on the rooftop and she does the thing, and we all know the thing that I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that line has always stuck with me. Uh, like, uh, mistletoe is deadly if you eat it. A kiss can be deadlier if you mean it. Like, so iconic. And those things, and like, and adaptations can also, and I, like, because I, I, this is the ADHD brain, here's a new connection. <laughs> Let me grab it while it's there. Adaptations can change and shape how media moves forward. If, if there are adaptations that are happening side by side, and which is what we have with comic book movies and comic books that are still being produced, like people, when people think about the best adaptation of Batman, a lot of people's brain goes to Batman the animated series yes. or yeah. uh, Batman and Justice League Unlimited. Uh, Wonder Woman in those, Superman and like those are what they the, these are what they're like. Yeah, like that's the best adaptation, I think. I mean, growing up in an honored household, Justice League was how I was introduced to the fact that women could be heroes and like Wonder Woman and like and Hawk Girl, like and yeah, and what's so interesting and the reason people think that is the best adaptation is because these the, that show was created by people who had grown up with the comics and this was their you know amalgamation of you know what comics had been and they kind of created a new standard and then the comics that came after that and that are now being written are people who were raised on these shows so those have now shaped how these characters are written in comics today and you see that when things are adapted side by side and 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 can and are still continuing uh which i think is very interesting how our the social concept of these stories becomes shaped is this our segue into dc and mcu absolutely because the the way that the comic book characters used to be written has changed. Like Groot used to speak. Like there was a, there was a time period in in Groot's existence in the comics where he's like eloquently spoke. Um, but guardians of the galaxy also wasn't a widely popular comic before it was adapted into the MCU. And then that Not made a huge boom in comic sales. And so those characters now have largely become shaped by their versions in the MCU, the Eternals. Like that's not a super popular. So it gives them in their adaptation a little bit more freedom than they have adapting Tony Stark or Steve Rogers. Um, But what's really interesting is some of the choices that they made because so let's look at, let's look at Bucky Barnes. When you look at Bucky Barnes in the MCU, because they made the choice to have Bucky be like the same age as Steve, because in the comics, if you don't know, I'm going to be that guy. Um, in the comics, Bucky is a child. Bucky is like 14 when he first starts joining with Cap and, and is, is, is with Cap and his adventure is with Cap on his adventures. Goddamn. <laughs> um, 
Wow, I didn't know that. I'm learning so much. <laughs> well, it's in certain universes. Like, of course, like with comics, it all gets changed every 20 years. Yeah, it all it all sh- shakes out differently. But and what in the character in the characterization choices they've made for Bucky in the MCU, he's really an amalgam of Bucky, James Buchanan Barnes, and Arnie Roll. I want to say his name is um, the, who is another character from the comics who was best friends with Steve. He was the one who grew up with Steve. He was the one that Steve went in to protect and was a Jewish gay man, which is a lot, which is why a lot of people hold that Bucky in the MCU is gay and at least ethnically Jewish. Also talking about queer coding. Hello, Steve and Bucky's whole relationship (sighs) as written in the movies. As written yeah. in the movies, it's it's very queer. And I can support it in the movies. It's, it's the comics that I'm like, no, he knew him when he was a child. No, thank you. Um, All right, I'm gonna go on <laughs> I'm gonna go on my tangent here. Yes, go. MCU fucked up majorly in their choice to possibly actually represent a disabled person. Hawkeye. Oh, oh yes. In yes. the comics is First of all, the only actual full human Avenger mm-hmm. he has, aside from like Tony, who has billions of dollars. So like being a billionaire does not qualify you as human. I'm sorry. It doesn't. <laughs> are no longer a well, human let's also talk about, point. let's also talk about the fact that Tony has nanites in his blood. So technically yeah. he's a cyborg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he's so, so Clint Martin. I will get on this. Like we've got the mm-hmm. Hawkeye show coming out, which is focusing on Kate Bishop. And I love oh, Kate Bishop. She's great. I'm happy for that. But they screwed over Clint Barton so fucking hard. Because mm-hmm. And when they should have let him just be himself, give him the same amount of cameos that you gave Natasha in previous other people's movies. Let him be his sarcastic ass. Like the, the one line in all of, MCU that qualifies who Clint Barton is as a person personality wise is the scene in age of Ultron when he and Wanda and um, Pietro are hiding and they're all like, Wanda's like, none of this makes sense. And he's like, yeah, no, I know there's gods and giant monsters and I'm fighting things with a stick from the paleolithic area. None of it makes sense. But like, here we Mm -hmm. are. That's Clint Barton's character as a whole. But also, he's deaf. Yeah. And yeah. how much more impactful? He's deaf. He's a deaf character who became a hero because his mentor and brother, who he saved, betrayed him. And in Iron Man 3, bringing back that pen, I'm bringing it back. Time is all in. <laughs> Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. But how much more impactful when Tony is struggling with PTSD and feeling like he is less because he has lost his suit? Would it have been? for Hawkeye then to take out his hearing aid and say, you think the machines are what make you a person and doing this all in sign. And being like, like, first of all, you would have gotten Hawkeye development. The kid was useless. The kid didn't actually do anything. And the the kid is set up for Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, it is, but I mean, that's, you know, it is what it is, but, but, but in the comics, Hawkeye is the first person that Cap turns to, that Steve turns to, and tries to hand the shield to. And in the MCU, we just get this completely neutered, completely boring human 
racist. Uh, it's Joss's fault. Like, Can we just blame Joss Whedon? It's his yeah. fault. No, because but, but I mean, like they could have. They could have. I, I I have so many feelings on this. Like Thor one is when we're first introduced to him, and if we had just had like some little sarcastic comment, like he's following Thor and sees all these gods and this giant robot shows up and just like looks at one of the warriors three and goes, "What?" And they go, "Who are you?" And he goes, "I'm a human. I'm supposed to be here. Who are you?" Like it could have been a two second line that would have introduced you to who Clint Barton is as a character and as a person and wouldn't have added anything and would have kept him from being in the Avengers comics, one of the most important Avengers who found West Coast Avengers and trains all the new Avengers, the young Avengers, he trains them all. Instead, we get this completely neutered version who, if he's not there, what, like, if you don't read the comics, are, is anyone going to miss the fact that Hawkeye's not there? You know, I didn't read the comics, so I think you're calling out really good stuff. I know nothing about this character. Like, yeah. there was always just enough to be like, I feel like there could be lots of cool shit here, but they're not cannot, showing it. I cannot recommend enough Pick up. Matt Fraction and David Aha's run of Hawkeye. Yes, it's, it's, it's literally what the the whole pitch is: what Hawkeye is doing when he's not being an Avenger, it's and he's so living good. in this apartment in Bed Stuy, uh, New York, and he. Uh, accidentally adopts a dog and it things are always going wrong for him and it's incredible and that dog is like a mafia dog like he takes that yeah, dog no from, he takes out the like, russian mafia who have taken over his apartment building because they're jacking up the rent on his elderly downstairs neighbor and so he takes over and takes out the russian mafia and then adopts their dog because they were mistreating the dog and like do you know how much I love Clint Martin? It's a thing. It's, I'm sorry. I'm getting that. I'm getting that. Now I really want to go read this comic. There's also like, and first of all, the art, like David Aha is a freaking <sighs> so unbelievable artist. It's, it's super graphic. Like it's very mm -hmm. graphic and minimal. It's, it's thick lines. It's yeah. It's like it's very thick cool. lines. It's kind of, it's not full flat color, but it's, yeah, it, it feels very much like, uh like a like a blown up newsprint comic it's the, it's a whole it's very the cool. whole run is great the whole run is great if anyone is listening slash you taryn want just a slight introduction to like get your teeth wet on it just the my life as a weapon book is it's like mm -hmm. a 40 page book it's very easily digestible but gets you a really solid introduction to the whole matt fraction um universe with hawkeye it's like the first five i think issues in in bounded to a graphic novel yeah but aaron your your point of like do these things to give him characterization is my ish is part of my issue with the way marv the mcu adapts these characters at large um and i have some spicy opinions that people might not like um, I adore Tom Holland. He is doing his best. He is very sweet. He, you know, that is Miles Morales. That is not Peter yeah. Parker. They took Miles Morales's personality, Miles Morales's, you know, whole thing. Like even like being at a gifted school in like they all they took all of that and gave it to Peter and said, "Here you go." 
I think there's something to be said about going back and looking at the real early Superman adaptation, or not Superman, I mean, sorry. Spider-Man. The real early superhero getting to Spider-Man adaptations. Yes, because like the current MCU, we wouldn't have been able to have without the success of Iron Man 1. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have been able to have Iron Man 1 without that original Spider-Man trilogy which is really what showed that uh, superhero movies could be profitable. Um, and in, in between all of that, there's this been this huge like up and down of how good the adaptations are, depending on who's doing it. Like right before we started uh, recording, I was saying to Lex that there's some real issues in, uh, if you haven't guessed my favorite superhero is Iron Man listeners. <laughs> so there's some real issues in the uh pepper tony dynamic because it all depends who has written that script and who has directed that scene you can see it in single movies mm -hmm. where she keeps flipping between personalities as to do they want her to have her own agency or is she just you know a, a, an attachment to tony yeah and this happens throughout the entire i'll say early mcu because to be honest past like phase two i stopped watching because it I was it was starting to grate on me all of these differences. Um, one one of the adaptations I don't think that gets talked about enough is the incredible the early incredible Hulk adaptation. Which right? one are we talking about? Are we talking about So there's two, Edward right? Norton, there's the really the really old the one. really terrible one with like the mutant dog <laughs> that should not exist and give me nightmares. Okay. And then there's the Ed Norton one where they're like Which is yeah, canon. we're gonna say it's canon, but here's the thing. Ed Norton wrote most of that script and he was not credited for it, oh, wow. which was a whole lot of behind the scenes politics. But um, essentially Tell the script was written. Everything. Okay. Um, the, <laughs> the script was written by the original script writer. I'm on the side. I'm going to pull up. I actually wrote a blog post about this. So that's how I happen to know a bunch of this was written by the, the script writer who um, gets credited but there were issues with it and that script writer did not have time to go through the edits and they had already cast ed norton to be um we went to yale by the way ed norton's amazing and ed norton was clearly not as good as bruce banner as brian reynolds is as deadpool because if brian reynolds decided to rewrite deadpool i'd be like that's fine Let's do it. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing is Ed Norton grew up on the Hulk comics, mm -hmm. which like hooks into what yeah. Lex was saying earlier about how the early cartoons had the flavor they had because those creators were were so into the comics. So that's why they were like, yeah, sure. Like, Ed, go ahead and work on this. And if you're watching the movie and you're really paying attention to the flow of the dialogue and the interactions of the characters, you can tell which scenes Ed wrote and which scenes the, auth the other author wrote because hmm. the scenes Ed wrote feel more genuine as as a person mm. okay. and it's it's such a shame because Liv Tyler's character got shafted so hard because the scenes that Ed wrote for her and worked on with her I mean, are really so beautiful 
I mean, female characters getting shafted is kind of the Marvel trope. So, well, so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> until very recently, like WandaVision well, and Captain Marvel were different, but like until very recently. But yeah, circling back to my problem with and pointing at what you said for Clint and what I was talking about for Peter and what they did to Natasha as well. Like all of these, like Natasha and Clint are not given consistent characterization. Well, can I, let me, let me build on that, um, Lex. So there's two problems here. One, it's when you're creating a series like the Avengers, you know. You're not communicating. Well, it's not even that. It's you have directors who have very specific visions and are pulling from different versions of the characters. So there's that. There's A, different uh, directors who have different idea of who the character is, which are all valid because they're coming from different versions of the characters that have been existed throughout comics. Like this mm-hmm. is something that creators talk about a lot. Um, it's something Kelly Sue talked about a lot when she was writing her run of Captain Marvel that they based the movie on um, that these characters change throughout their history. And so there's yeah. Yeah, there's so many different versions of these characters that exist. And specifically the problem with MCU is there's Marvel 616 and there's Marvel Ultimates. Joss Whedon is a, is a vocal fan of the Ultimates first. That's why Clint has a family who he would have killed off because, spoiler alert, that's what happens in the Ultimates comics. They exist to die. He was going to do that in that movie. And I guarantee you... Marvel executives were like, you can't do that. But that's why he exists that way. That's why his cap is so weird because he's pulling from Ultimate's cap, who is much more um, uh, fascist, like weird, like that. So I think that that's part of the problem is this inconsistency. And uh, let me tell you, Cap is one of my favorite superheroes. (laughs) Um, Cap is amazing. And at the risk of alienating everyone who's listening, hi guys. Uh, Joss Whedon is trash. Oh, I think so, we all like, know. I think I hopefully we all agree yeah. that he's become a garbage person. I mean, person. if if you're listening to this, I would hope you already know that. Like, <laughs> as much as it guts me, if you want to tweet at me about defending Joss Whedon, I will just own you on TikTok. So. <laughs> Please feel free at me. But yeah, I think there's a uh, huge difference. Like if you look at um, uh, the two writers who wrote First Avenger, they also wrote all the, they were consistent. They were all the way through all the Captain mm-hmm. America films. Steve is consistent in their writing. And I love his, like, I love that Steve. That's my Steve. That Steve is amazing. Yeah. Like, that's the Steve who who earns the love of Peggy Carter who is a yeah. goddess. Um, but yeah, that was something that, that is the Steve. That is the Steve who consistently like to bring in new, new things like spoiler alert slash Falcon winter soldier. But that is the Steve who does not ever introduce himself as I'm captain America. Right. He's the Steve who introduces himself as hi, I'm Steve Rogers. Yeah. And I was really happy to see, and this is again, not spoiler, but I felt like, the storyline with John Walker in the in the show was like an exact parallel of what Captain America would be if um, Captain Phillips had got his way and not Erskine. So if they had gone with yeah. the army guy that he wanted to give the serum mm-hmm. to and not Steve. And I was like, yes, you are like literally defining why Steve Rogers was important and why Sam 
um, is important and who is the way he is. Like all the people who have owned the shield in the comics, like why they, the shield almost, I feel like has, it's not a magical property like Thor's hammer, but there's Mm -hmm. like almost um, a moral it's it's so representative as lex collects their thoughts i'm just gonna say like (laughs) yeah no i agree and that's why clint when steve was like hey you want to take on the mantle he was like no no i'm too sarcastic and i don't want to be that moral representation like i'm a fucking deaf orphan orphan i don't want to be that moral representation for the country thank you very much i appreciate you i love you bro bye no, thank you. So that's one of the things that's um, interesting. And they did it really well, I think, in Falcon and Winter Soldier and like with the characterization of Steve in the MCU is like, uh, Steve is what America should be. John Walker is what America is. Yes, yes. Um, and like Sam is what... Like, everybody has been something different. Because, like, when Bucky was Cap in the comics, like, he represented something different. And he and he never felt comfortable as Cap. Yeah. No, I think the, I think the transition of Sam to Cap has been brilliant. Yeah. And I love what they brought in Isaiah Bradley. And actually, I felt like that is one but of... But I'm so worried. I am so worried. So, spoilers for Young Avengers, because here's the thing, honey... Uh, they're bringing in the Young Avengers. Oh, yeah, they're, they are. They're, oh, yeah. Doing, oh, yeah. They're doing the Young Avengers, and if you don't know what the Young Avengers are, please go read them. Um, you can either pick up, you know, the 20, what is it, 20, 2009 is the first one. Uh, I think the first so, yeah. collection of them, and they're, like, collected in, like, Volume 1 and Volume 2, Karen I believe. Gillen, they have amazing, yes. amazing writer, did a phenomenal run. Phenomenal So run. good. Also, yeah. the 2013 run? Was it 2013? Was volume two with Loki? Oh, that was. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was all like his his run was all one, and then I think someone else picked up young Loki and did like a second kind of story with that. Well, so there's Agents of Asgard, right? uh, Yes, um, which is so good. Which is, I think they're I think they're pulling heavily from some of the energy of agents of asgard for the loki series yeah, agreed. Uh, just based yeah. on what i've seen they also did the vote loki um that would just make sense with the fact that they're transitioning into clint training kate mm-hmm. for the hawkeye series so like yeah. loki the loki series being the transition in between falcon and winter soldier and then them transitioning into clint training kate would just make sense for them to do kind of some young loki themes right going into young avengers i think i think at the end of this because the loki series is the last thing tom is doing so i think at the end of the loki series we have young loki that makes sense um but going back to what i'm worried about with the young avengers in the comp and this is where this is where adaptations have a great opportunity to like better the story. Like the, like what the reason I brought up shadow hunters is because the TV series changes some of the problematic bullshit that Cassandra did and like took it out. And it was like, no, absolutely not. We're doing it this way. And like, and they also like fleshed out the queer characters because Magnus and Alec are a footnote in the original series. Uh, whereas they are prominent in the television series. And with the Young Avengers, 
Isaiah Bradley, um, the Patriot, uh, the, he, his grandson is a part of the young Avengers originally. And he claims that he got a blood transfusion. He was in a car accident and got a blood transfusion from his grandfather. And that's what gave, gave him his powers. Later on, we find out he's dosing with mutant growth hormone, uh, which is a, which is a steroid like substance within the universe. Um, and he, and it's like, you chose to do that storyline with a, with a young black man. Uh, and then, Mm, and then later on he gets hurt in combat and has the blood transfusion and then genuinely has the powers, uh, and doesn't have to dose, but like you, like, well, so question, Mm. would you prefer, uh, like hypothetically, um, would you prefer that if they choose to take this version of the character, would you prefer they completely cut that dosing? Or do you feel that's still important enough to the character that they, they, you don't think they should have chose this variation I, of the character? I, I don't. I think that they should leave out the dosing storyline. Like, it's, it's different. Agree. It's different than Roy Harper, right? So Roy Harper is from DC Comics. Uh, he plays Green Arrow's sidekick, Speedy, later on Red Arrow, later on Arsenal. Um, he was one of the founding members of the Teen Titans. He's been around for a really long time. Uh, he There is a storyline where he was using drugs um, and Green Arrow catches him and like it's 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 awful. But that has become like being a recovering addict and being, you know, sober has become a really big part of his character. We're ignoring heroes in crisis right now because fuck heroes in crisis. Uh, I don't know if you've read that, Alyssa, but it's uh, no, it's, I'm mostly a Marvel reader. Unfortunately, got you. <laughs> it's not a good, it, I mean, it's good, but it's not good. We, they killed Roy and I'm just like, bring him back, please. Um, but yeah, like being sober and like having been a recovered addict is like a big part of his character now. And so to like leave that out of an adaptation feels like running away from something because you have the opportunity there to show addiction and show, you know, recovery and like humanize that. And the same with like Clint's deafness. Like if you do it correctly, you're not doing the whole like tokenization thing of like, Oh, look at him. He's an exceptional one. Like, you know, like you have to yeah. do these things correctly. In my ideal version, mm-hmm. Marvel, thank you. I know you're listening to this podcast, Marvel execs. So thank you. <laughs> um, in my ideal version, without changing much of the story for Clint to bring in his deafness would literally have been, he got possessed by Loki he would have been really sarcastic about Loki's like orders. Like Loki would be like, kill that guy. And he'd be like, do you want bombs? Do you want nets? Do you want chair? Like literally pulling out all of his different arrows being like, which one do you want? And Loki would be like, I don't care. I just told you to kill him. He's like, yeah, no, you want me to kill him. You got to pick. Um, but then Natasha knocks his head and that's what knocks the sense back into him. And when she knocks his head, knocking his hearing aid out, And just having that just as a brief moment where she knocks his hearing aid out and then she checks on him and he just signs back to her. Like, yeah, you fucking knocked my hearing aid out, bitch. Like something (laughs) along those lines. 
It's so, uh, what I find is so ironic. So tiny, like the changes would have been so tiny. Right. And, and that would have given so much, like that scene in itself has, it has a lot of depth and weight to those two characters in mm-hmm. particular already. I agree. That would have made it even, even more juicier. And what I find most ironic about um, calling out that particular scene, right, is back before I found out what a scumbag Joss was, I was really into listening to all his commentaries mm. about, you know, how he would make his movies and his whatnot. And listening to the commentary for that scene, there's that one part where right at the right at the end of that scene, you know, Hawkeye gets asked a question and he says, yeah, but it's not really audible. In post-production, the audio team wanted Joss to have that voiced over so that you could hear the actor actually saying the line and joss was like no 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 this is this is very hawkeye this like this moment and it's like then why are you cutting out all this other Great, then why did you forget who hawkeye was the rest of the time exactly why did you but forget also who like... he is the rest of the time he is like here's the thing Hawkeye, as he's written in the comics, would have been a great Joss Whedon. Like, Joss Whedon, Banter, and Hawkeye could have married, like, yeah. well. That's what's so, that's what's so wild, yeah, yeah. But, like, Joss also has the worst Black Widow of all of the MCU. Yeah, like, I mean, that's true. I mean, except for when, when she got fridged, but that's a whole other... <sighs> listen, um, listen, Black Widow is just his Buffy in the MCU, ooh. let's be honest here. Listen... But rolling, I know, I know. It, rolling it back to, you know, the the issue that Marvel has with characterization, like they do that, like they wait to see, okay, what do people react to the best? That's what we're doing the rest of the time. Because look at look at Thor Ragnarok, like it is it is it's a fun movie. It's it's a good time, but place it incongruent like congruently with the other two movies that are Thor, crazy that are thor movies like it is not a it is not in the same vein he isn't even so character i fighting here am i fighting both he, of you I don't he know, isn't, he isn't even let's i'm gonna be on the side of ragnarok i'm on the side so it's me and Alyssa versus taryn and Lick. let's it, go here, it's let's the, go. here's the thing though like it's a it's a good movie i enjoy it but it does not fit with I the will, other thor i movies. don't agree with you i don't agree especially with you especially I, I, I agree with, with you that it does not fit with the other four movies however i think that ragnarok and taika watiti take thor to the level that Thor needed to be taken in order to be enjoyed. I think that the other two movies tried to take him too seriously, which made it hard to buy in a human world. Like I said earlier, you cannot have a superpowered God and place them into a human world and have the stakes feel like they matter at all. Well, he's also been he, he's also been shaped by everything that's happened in the previous movies. He's gone going through like an existential crisis. He's completely out of his zone. Now he's in this completely alien world and he's being forced to, you know, fight without his powers. Like, of course, he's going to be a, a different person. And but I feel like you also you have to have the complete exaggeration. You have to have the complete ridiculousness that you get in Ragnarok to make Thor feel like a thing. That's my, that is the thing. It's not that, you know, he's, it's not that I don't take into account he's being shaped by these other things that have happened. He is in the other movies where he, you know, is 
Like, he still has comedic moments, but he is taken more seriously. And then compared to who he is in Ragnarok, he at times feels just like a himbo. Well, and is. there's nothing... He and, is! And he's, he's the he's only He kind of is. That is, that is who Thor he is. Kind he kind of is. Even in mythology. No, come no, on. Yes, he ki- no, listen, 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 listen. He kind of is a himbo, yes, but he also, like, is you know a leader and a you know like he, and he does do that in ragnarok he at the end when he's yeah. eating the battle at the, uh, but that's the thing is like at the, and i just art. i would that's have liked it to be more con- i would have liked it to be more consistent um and it didn't feel consistent with who he who he had been like they played him more for laughs uh, yeah but i don't like who he was in the previous two movies like i feel like the previous two movies took thor too seriously why is this Asgardian god who lives for thousands of years concerned about a single giant on like he fights frost giants on the regular like thousands of them why does he care about a single giant on earth why why would he care about that i think it um i think the reason the first two and this is this is the way the lens through which i view them the first two thor movies are centered in thor's perspective so this is how thor sees himself whereas when we take into ragnarok we're seeing more closely loki's perspective and we're seeing also these other so these other perspectives are shading the the thematic move of the movie I believe Alyssa said it, where Thor Ragnarok is Thor's existential crisis. So if you're taking the other two Thor movies as Thor's view of himself, mm. then the the jarring shift in tone and color palette of Ragnarok then completely fits with his view of himself whilst having an existential crisis. And it, so that's our in-universe explanation for it. The actual explanation for it is Guardians of the Galaxy did well and is like literally that's what it like Guardians yes. of the Galaxy yeah. did extremely well. Deadpool did extremely well. You had these comedic movies, these comedic superhero movies, still big explosions, still big stakes, do really well. So they said, ah, that's the new formula. And they I think of- that is what frustrated me about Ragnarok is that like I like the movie. Like I don't necessarily dislike it. I prefer the other two because that's just the type of media I enjoy consuming myself. Mm -hmm. But Ragnarok's still a good movie. I think what frustrates me most about it is how obvious it was that they were jumping on the formula train of these other colorful, sarcastic, like almost frantic movies that were doing so well. But I don't know. Like, do we know about the timing? Because these movies get planned so far in advance I feel like Taika Waititi was signed on to do a Marvel film kind of before Ga- Guardian. I think it was before Guardians came out. But he- and 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 to to that end, here's the here's the big question with all of our questions about adaptational media. Here's where it all comes back in. You see that something is resonating with the audience who you are telling a story to. Does it make it a better or worse adaptation? if you play to what is resonating with your audience. And I would argue that it makes a better adaptation. Well, I think Mm -hmm. the nice thing about the MCU is there's room for every adaptation. Like, because especially in phase four, is that what we're in now? We've completed everything that was being 
sort of like you had to do to lead up to the big Avengers finale. Um, now we're in this time where it's a lot of little different films that are kind of getting to do their own thing. And with the TV, when with TV too, like WandaVision is completely different from anything else that's out there. So there's place now for both of these things to exist. And WandaVision was like, it's so sad because WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier were both cut short due to COVID. Um, and things changed drastically. Originally in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they had a whole virus storyline planned. Um, Ooh, that they, I'm glad they abandoned that, to be honest. Yeah, that they, ed- yeah. they edited it over. That's why you will see some scenes where uh, the character is like out of frame or like their back is turned and you still hear them because they're voicing over lines that were already said. Um, (laughs) but, um, those were, those were done really well. And I think, um, the issue for me is it, it just sometimes feels messy. Uh, like with Natasha, they tossed her from person to person, like, Oh, toss her at Tony, which makes sense because for those, for, the listeners that don't know black widow started as an iron man villain uh that that was her first appearance she and hawkeye actually both started as iron man villains they did absolutely they stole one of tony's suits together (laughs) and um so it makes sense because she, she literally seduced tony to steal the suit and so it makes sense to throw her there, but then they want to throw her at who was the next person they threw her. I think they may be established. They threw her at everyone. Really. Exactly. Like they threw her at like, it was like Iron Cap. Man too. They threw at Cap. They, they threw, threw at Cap. They threw Bruce. They, they threw, threw at Bruce. Hawkeye. There was a, there was a definite implication that maybe they were romantically linked. Um, comic verse. She's also tied with Bucky. So and there they is reference a little bit that. Of, they do reference yeah. that in one of the movies when he's like attacking her and she, she says, you could at least act like you remember me. Um, she's re- because for those of you that don't know in the comics, Bucky was held by the red room to help train, uh, the, the, the sparrows. Um, and also if you've never read the Natasha comics- taught him Russian. Also, if you haven't read the comics, it is not referenced in MCU, but um, Natasha has the same, basically, version of Super Soldier Serum yes. that Bucky has. Yes, she has. She has a Russian <laughs> version of it. Face is very like so. She right has now. a she has a Russian version of it, and the specific explanation for the Red Room and the reason they only did it on women is because their version of the superhero soldier, the super hero soldier serum drove men mad like every man that got it like went insane uh so only women could handle it um so they would be forcibly sterilized and then would receive the uh superhero soldier serum which hopefully they will address in the movie but well no they won't because they don't want her to be a superhero soldier like they don't want her to be on par with steve um and because they already have too many powerful women. They already have Wanda. They already have Carol. They already have oh, you're right. Monica. You know, they've you're reached right. their quota. No, 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 no. I'm Three sorry. Three is what? too many powerful what? women. You're right. Three is too many powerful women. We can't have right. more. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, yeah, sorry. Let's, <laughs> all right. We didn't come here. We didn't come here to fuck spiders. Let's. Well, <laughs> I will say this. 
Um, in terms of going to, to bring this back into what makes a successful adaptation, yes. I will say what I love, I will say I will take a Thor Ragnarok any day mm-hmm. over Batman versus Superman. Oh, because, absolutely. Absolutely agree. <laughs> because Fuck. Thor Ragnarok has a point of view. It has, you know, it's an original concept, look, feel, tone. It's Taika Waititi bringing his passion and vision and style to this film. Batman versus Superman, I think what a lot of the DC films tend to have the problem is they feel very generic. Mm -hmm. Like the villain is generic. You can swap it out for anything and it doesn't really matter. A lot of the characters, the movies follow the same beats, which I think is why for a long time, they just weren't, they're not, weren't as popular because they felt more formulaic and not like have a strong point of view. And then Wonder Woman came along and it had a strong point of view. It had a very specific aesthetic. Um, Shazam. And then Wonder Woman 84 came along. Okay, we're not going. We're, yes, we're not talking about that. <laughs> uh, Moving on. Uh, but yes, I think, I, I think like whether or not it's your thing is fine. But I would say, I think it's it's hard to argue that th- that those two movies like one is inherently more successful than the other in terms of like what they were trying to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, but like, yeah, look at the, the DC properties that have done an extremely good job with like adapting things I would say would be Shazam, uh, wonder woman, Aquaman. I think those have been the best live actions. I hated Aquaman, but I know it was ridiculous, but I respected what they were trying to do. It was batshit fucking crazy. It was terrible, but I enjoyed it for being batshit crazy. I think the better adaptations for DC have always been their animated universes. If 100%. you look at their animated films, they are so much more intertwined and still individualistic than the 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 live action continuity but and yes. what's interesting is that they use the same studio mm-hmm. like dc animation has a style and even but the stories can feel unique and like the way they treat them you know they do like i got to review the oh shoot what was it it was like kind of a, a victorian take on batman mm-hmm. um that came out a few years ago oh but yes. it was yeah, it was good. Yeah. Um, but like, you always know it's a DC studio animated film because they ha- it has this look and style and feel to it. But they still managed to do unique things within that universe. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to bring it back to what Taryn was saying earlier, though, about how sometimes the to get us off of like MCU comics for a second. Sorry, guys. I know no. we could we could spend hours. Hours. Like, that between, could be its own podcast. Oh, it really will could. be. <laughs> there will especially be a series. Between, especially with like Lex, Alyssa, and I, the three of us could talk comics for like eight hours and still not be bored. Um, Truly. But I did want to bring it back to like book adaptations that the film series got better. Mm. And I think one of the best adaptations that I have seen here has been Handmaid's Tale. Absolutely. Absolutely. The book series I felt was our series. It's one book. It's like one 200 page book. It's a very short (laughs) book. It is. But 
But I feel like the the main character, June, as the narrator, is far too inconsistent. And she's an unreliable narrator. And it's clear that Margaret, Margaret Atwood did that by choice. Mm-hmm. That was intentional. She's been gaslit. She's been terrorized. She's been tortured. But having her as your primary narrator, you can't really invest in the world because you don't know if anything is true. Meanwhile, we have the show on Hulu, which touching on Taryn's point about earlier about things being way too real for you to keep watching them. I had to stop for a while for like, if you're listening to this podcast, you're the audience who can tell why without me saying anything about. (laughs) Um, Just say his name. We'll bleep it. Just like (laughs) editor's note. Anytime is said, just fat beep right there. Everybody who knows will know. Uh-huh. Um, but then you have the the show that comes in and the show gives you some sort of solid ground. Like you're not constantly questioning everything you're told, which I understand why Margaret Atwood did that in the book, mm-hmm. but it made it less of an enjoyable read for me personally, because I never felt like I had solid ground to know what was really going on. And then also the series has Black characters. It has LGBTQ characters. It has a bunch of different representations that were absolutely not there in the book. Yeah. Well, I think it's another one of those. It's interesting. And I, this is, y'all are going to think I'm strange, but kind of like Harry Potter. In this very small book, she Margaret Adwood creates this incredibly fascinating in-depth world like this so and by having it be short and open-ended gives room for the show to be able to run and do what they've done with it especially because um the book the series ends where the book does Mm -hmm. in, in at the end of season one that's all that the story we get we don't know anything of what happens to the main character after this this point and so where they've it's been fascinating seeing how they've taken that character and what they've done with the world. Because like, you know, from the book that there's this period of time when this crazy government has taken over um, this, this conservative, repressive, horrible society has taken over. Mm -hmm. We know that it ends, but there's this in-between period that's left to say, well, how, why we don't know. The book ends at the end of season one, where she climbs into the back of the, if you've seen the show, where she climbs into the back of the van and you don't know if her lover person has turned her in because he's an eye or if he's helping her. She is, she climbs into the back of the van and the van shuts the van door shut. And that is the end of the book. And that is all, you know? Yes. And you know, so that what's really fascinating. What one of the things I love about the book is the epilogue is um, a trans quote unquote transcript from a, conference about like a a scholarly conference about this time period Mm. and it's talking about Offred's story as a an artifact that they have this text but they can't verify the author they can't verify they're like trying to piece together who these people could have been because it was written in code it's fast that to me is like super fascinating so yes 100% like it I think it is one of the best adaptations that's 
come out in a long time. And I, I have to put in my, my, um, very quickly, my, my other thing of, of favorite adaptations that have happened in a while. And that is the Bridgerton series. I am a massive fan of the books. Huge, huge, huge. Like, give me historical romance. Give me Regency romance. Give me dancing at the Tawn and visits and like showing your ankle means you have to get married the next day. I'm here for all of it. And what Bridgerton specifically the series has done is by Shonda Rhimes being the executive producer, the author is like, yes, please like bring, because it's a Lily White series. And it's also, you know, that's a whole thing to get into romance and, and race and romance. But the fact that she was like, yes, take my books, make it multicultural, bring in different characters of different races. And by like how wildly successful it is, they're doing season two. It's awesome. Like more multicultural, give me more multicultural stuff in Lily White media. Is that, is that worth it? I have to say, I watched episodes one and two and I could not get into Bridgerton. And I do really love that. Like I love Regency romance shit and I could not, it just didn't catch me. Yeah. It's a little, there, there is a, a humor in the books that's kind of missing Mm. from the writing. I would say that's the one, that's kind of the one complaint I have. Well, also they kept in a super problematic storyline from the first book. Um, But the, if you like a story about families that is the Julia, that is the Bridgerton series. It's about this family. I just don't like any like, of the characters in the show. They're much, they're much better in the books. I would say okay. go okay. read the books. Okay. Big, big, big pitch for the books because every one of them is a different character. So like the first book is Daphne's, the second book is Anthony's, the third book is um, like, it goes through all of the kids and their, their story, their romance, and they're intertwined. So like p- characters from the different books come in and, and, and at the heart, it's a story about this family and the mom and who I adore. And yeah, so if you liked the series, if the series was like, oh, this is sort of interesting, the show, go read the books. They're delightful. They're Regency romance. With, there's, there's, Which it's a great the whole read. point of Regency romance is to romanticize the time period, not necessarily the values of that time period. 100%. Um, It's exactly 100%. And with all of that, we could probably continue this conversation forever. Tell us your opinions on what you had to say on Twitter, but I'm going to say goodnight to these guys for now. And maybe, you know what, if you guys have something cool to say or something to bring to attention, maybe we'll come back together. Who knows? Maybe, maybe I haven't scared them off. (laughs) (laughs) but i want to say good night to first taryn good night thank you so much for having me this was a really wonderful time (laughs) do you have anything that you want to plug one last time before you go yeah just one last time um check me out on instagram that's lion's den projects um i have a whole bunch of stuff i'm working on right now from book reviews to crafts to art so come say hi Alyssa, good night. Thank you for joining me. Good night, my darling. Uh, just a reminder, my general Instagram is Jack, And then I have a cosplay specific one that is Jack underscore cosplay, uh, where it also shows some of the subversive embroidery I've been working on in quarantine. Ooh. It's really great. You guys should check it out. And good night, my dear Erin. Thank you. Good night, guys. I am on Erin Go Play. 
Instagram, Twitter, all of that. I will be streaming through Novi Studios. Thank you for joining the conversation, dear listeners. And if you would like to keep the conversation going, you can join us over on Discord. Uh, by the time this airs, that will be fully live. Uh, or you can find uh, at uh, Lex Talk About It on Twitter. Or you can find me, um, my personal, at AUPlatedGarbage on Twitter. Uh, that is the atomic symbol for gold because I am a nerd. <laughs> I want to say thank you one last time to all of my guests from tonight and remind you, dear listener, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and have some fun.